Sorry, I have to wipe a few tears from my eyes. Sorry. <laughs> ah, just very beautiful. Thank you, Mrs. Ames and Mrs. Fisher, for adoration. Very beautiful violin solo. Mm. My father uh, played the violin, and when I first met my wife, I thought, well, do we have anything in common? And uh, found out that her father played the violin, so I knew we had something in common. And our relationship grew from there. Well, welcome to all our guests and greetings to all our friends around the world. It seems that God is bringing attention to the city of Charlotte, the Queen City. And, of course, that's where much of his work goes out into the world. Today, September 8th, touches on the city's of Charlotte's history. According to the Charlotte Observer this morning, on this very date in 1781, September 8th, King George III married Princess Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz in Germany, just after a few hours, or just a few hours after meeting her. So that uh, began some of the history of Charlotte, North Carolina. When my wife and I were there six years ago, we took a boat tour in Berlin, and uh, there opposite was a boat with the title Charlottenburg, uh, right there in Berlin. But here in Charlotte this past week, we heard the uh, President of the United States address the Democratic National Convention. And the previous week, the Republican National Convention heard uh, the presidential candidate, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, address the, uh, con- the Congress there in uh, Tampa, Florida. And some political analysts have stated that whichever candidate wins, he can do little to turn the economy around since the entitlements, that's the entrenched parts of the budget items, are such a huge percentage of the national budget that there's not much he could do. So we all, brethren, need to pray that God will guide the election for the benefit of his work and are preaching the gospel. As you heard the announcements, a week from tomorrow night, we'll be observing the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, feast time is rapidly approaching, and I'm sure we're all getting excited about it. My wife and I will be uh, going to uh, California first, and then New Zealand for atonement, and then on to Australia for the first part of the feast, then Hawaii, the last part of the feast. Most of you are preparing physically and spiritually and financially, and we all look forward to celebrating the God's wonderful festivals just as he's commanded us. Most of you have heard from the World Ahead updates that the Living Youth Camp in Delaware, Ohio, attended by 228 staff and campers, was a great success. At these camps, students learn new skills and broaden their horizons. Years ago, I was asked to introduce Christian living classes into the summer educational program in Orr, Minnesota. They had an orientation for the staff that particular summer. That was actually 1980. We had 19 activities, but before the campers arrived, all of us as supervisors or counselors had to go through all 19 of those activities, which included water skiing, swimming, volleyball, basketball, riflery, uh, many other activities. And my wife and I participated in them all. One of them was rock climbing. And so it was a new experience for us to rappel off a cliff because you have to actually push yourself backwards in order to rappel down the cliff. That was exciting for us. 
But one of the campers there, a girl age 15, was doing very poorly back home in school. And she did average in all of the activities, but on one activity she excelled, and that was archery. She hit the bullseye. She became the best archer of all the campers there at that camp. It gave her some confidence. She had experienced some success. And so actually we found out that when she went back to school that that experience of success translated into successful academic improvement where before she was just an average uh, scholar or average student. We have to be able to hit the bullseye in the target of life. The term bullseye apparently was used a couple centuries ago referring to the center of a lens, for perhaps it looked like a bull's eye. But then later it applied to the center of targets. We had uh, in the latest Wall Street Journal, this was just last Tuesday, we think about uh, those who are uh, shooting arrows. How many of you, by the way, have ever shot an arrow? Okay, wow, looks like about 90% of you. It's amazing. The Wall Street Journal on Tuesday has this photo of a man taking aim. Athlete from Iowa takes aim and hits silver in London games. He has no arms. On target, Matt Stutzman, born without arms, won one of the United States' 40 medals in the Paralympic Games. China led the medal count Monday with 112. But an amazing photo, a man without arms, and yet able to get a silver medal in archery. We all need to think about aiming at the target of life. When I went through basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, we had riflery as one of our activities, and of course riflery is one of the living youth camp activities as well. I was looking uh, at uh, television here recently and found... Uh, had a military channel had a program on uh, snipers and how they have developed the science of riflery to the extent that the world record of killing someone was 1.5 miles away. Now, you just think you go out here to Randolph Road, it's 1.2 miles down to Sardis, and take another third of a mile after that. If you were way down there and someone shot a rifle, from here, that sniper could actually hit you that far. Well, man, of course, has taken the inventions of good and changed them to evil. At the living youth camp, I understand one archer was so accurate that he put an arrow through the hole of a small candy lifesaver. I don't know how far away he was, maybe about 50, 50 feet or so. But that's pretty accurate. But today I want to ask you, how committed are you to hit the target of life? How committed are you to hit the bullseye, the center of the target? So many today, even in God's church, are not focused on the goal in life, on the target of life. They're not committed to fulfill their life mission with zeal and wholeheartedness. So many of us are led off the path by of life by distractions. I get distracted. I'm sure I won't ask you to raise your hands. How many of you are distracted? I think we'd have 100% hands go up. But uh, 
we find ourselves distracted from a project or a work in progress. And some of us are easily distracted from our goals, particularly when we get old. I'll read you this poem, Ode to Getting Old. Just a line to say I'm living, that I'm not among the dead, though I'm getting more forgetful and something slipping in my head. I got used to arthritis, to my dentures I'm resigned. I can manage my bifocals, but oh, how much I miss my mind. For sometimes I cannot remember when I stand atop the stairs, if I must go down for something, or if I've just come up from there. And before the fridge so often, my mind is filled with nagging doubt. Have I just put food away, or have I come to take some out? I called a friend not long ago. When they answered, I just moaned. I hung up quickly without speaking, for I'd forgotten who I phoned. And when the darkness falls upon me, I stand alone and scratch my head. I don't know if I'm retiring or just getting out of bed. Once I stood... No, I skipped that one. Good good thing I caught that. So now if it's my turn to write you, there's no need for getting sore. It may be that I think I've written and don't need to write no more. Now I stand beside the mailbox with a face so very red. Instead of mailing you the letter, I have opened it instead. (laughs) Ode to getting old. And uh, we do get distracted. We get uh, forgetful. But we need to focus on the goal of life. And you know what that goal is. Let's turn there by way of introduction to Matthew, the third and sixth chapter. Matthew 6, starting with verse 31. Very profound that Jesus, the Savior of the world, gave us this instruction. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Well, many people are worrying that in the global recession that we're experiencing. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. God the Father knows all your needs. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. How committed are we to that goal? We've had sermons on the subject. He goes on to say in verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. And some of us do. We worry about tomorrow, and I start worrying. I have to remind myself of this verse. For tomorrow will worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We heard about the goal of life in the sermonette, just our awesome potential that God has ahead for us. But what can keep us from achieving that goal in life? Distractions, deceptions, and detours. And that's the title of the sermon, Distractions, Deceptions, and Detours. So what can keep us from achieving that perfect goal? First of all, we need to ensure that we do not deceive ourselves. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I think you should all know that scripture because it's so key to understanding our human nature. Or some other translation has it that the heart is desperately ill. That's our nature. Let's turn to James, the first chapter, James 1, and realize 
Human beings can deceive themselves. I've deceived myself. Have you? If you're human, you have. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Here in James 1, in verse 22, he tells us, Be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Yes, you can be deceived. I can deceive myself. There is a way to avoid that, and that's by being doers of the word. Turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter, Matthew 13. There are many distractions, deceptions, and detours that can lead us away from the truth. Matthew, the 13th chapter, the parable of the sower. Starting in verse 18, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who receives the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And we've experienced that in baptizing tours in the past Realize people are very excited about it, but what happens, verse 21, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and become unfruitful. Yes, there are distractions, there are deceptions, there are detours that can make us unfruitful. In the November-December Living Church News, and uh, this has been printed but not mailed out yet. Of course, we've had to editorial put these uh, in advance because of uh, the feast. This is the November-December 2012 Living Church News. Dr. Meredith's Dear Brethren starts off, What will be your stumbling block? He writes here on uh, page 2, It is so easy to be caught up in the cares of this world. Consider how the deceitfulness of riches affects businessmen and women who let themselves become focused constantly on how well off they are. How easy it is to become involved too much in the concerns of career, of being important and making more and more money to get ahead. And many homemakers become so involved in taking care of their households, wanting everything to be perfect, or are caught up in loving, quote, end of quote, their children or family even more than they love God himself, that it is easy for them to fall away after failing to put God first. Are any of you involved in these attitudes? I hope you'll read Dr. Meredith's article uh, when it comes out, <clears throat> November, December. Will, what will be your stumbling block? But listen to Matthew 23, verse 23. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. And I hope you pray that you are bearing fruit, as it tells us in John 15, where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and God the Father 
is the gardener, the husbandman, and he says in John 15:8, "Herein is our Father glorified that you bear much fruit." And as we look around our congregation here, we know that many of you have borne much fruit, and we appreciate that. But we need to make sure that we are dedicated to doing just that and are not distracted, deceived, or take detours. I mention detours because of past disruptions in the church, some fell away for a while, and some fell away totally. They had not stayed on the right path. They took a painful detour. But thankfully, over the past few years, some of the lost sheep have come back. As a congregation, as a church nationwide, worldwide, we fasted, and we've asked God to bring back those lost sheep. In his co-worker letter of June 17, 2003, to all the church members, this was announcing a church-wide fast July 12, 2003, Dr. Meredith wrote, quote, I exhort all of you, brethren, to begin to seek God in a more urgent way to intervene and to empower his work as never before. And I hope that, in a special way, each of us may try to reach out to a number of our former brethren and encourage them to return to the truth, to return to the true God and his ways. We need to pray our hearts out to God that God will begin to reopen their minds, have mercy upon these confused and sometimes disillusioned former brethren, and bring back these lost sheep to himself. So, brethren, we need to continue to be praying for the lost sheep. Many of them are coming back, as we see in the Tomorrow's World special presentations and those campaigns. I mentioned before at the feast in Daytona, in 2006, where my wife and I attended, there was a, a member that came and told me that he or she had been away for 30 years and now is just coming back for the feast to the first time. Then we went from Daytona up to Paducah, Kentucky that year, 2006, and I'd mentioned that in the uh, congregation. And one person came up later and said, Mr. Ames, I was away from the church for 40 years and have just come back. So there's no reason to ever give up hope. We need to continue to pray for our children, our families, those who have gone astray, that the lost sheep can come back. But don't give up on those who've taken a detour. It could lead to destruction, but some have come back into the sheepfold. Keep praying for them and determine for yourself not to take a detour off the straight and narrow path. God wants us to stay on the right path, and by analogy, as I mentioned earlier, to hit the target of life. There's a classic example of one way of life that misses that target. It's called the way of Balaam. We'll try to skim through that story. It's just a remarkable story, but let's take a look at it back in Numbers chapter 22. It covers Numbers chapter 20 through 2 through chapter 24. We start in chapter 22 of Numbers. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Many of us have been there. We 
had a global feast of tabernacles in Jerusalem and Israel and went on over to Jordan in 1998, and uh, we visited Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all that Israel had done had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. <clears throat> so Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox lips up, licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at the time. So how are we going to solve this problem? Well, we know how to solve this problem. We'll get this seer, this diviner, this prophet, he was actually a false prophet, from across the river. Verse 5, Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me. Were they too mighty for me? Verse 7, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with a diviner's fee in their hand. He was a diviner, a seer. But they had a fee. They were going to pay him to curse Israel. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And so Balaam said, Well, I'll get back to you. And uh, so he asked God what he should do. In verse 12, God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes, Go back to your land, for the Eternal has refused to give me permission to go with you. You uh, the, The subtext of all of this, as you read through the story, is that Balaam really wanted the diviner's fee. He wanted that money, but God's not going to let me curse them, and though I can't get the fee. Well, he tried three times. Balak goes three times to Balaam, and Balaam says in verse 18, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go before the word of the eternal my God to do less or more. A little hint there of uh, maybe it would be a house full of silver and gold might be a little tempting. And then God came to Balaam at night, verse 20, and said, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Now, he wasn't supposed to go, so God's anger was aroused, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And as... Balaam was riding his donkey and his two servants with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn him back onto the road. Well, you know the story. As it said, the donkey saw the angel, but Balaam struck him again. And uh, <laughs> actually it gets to be a little humorous here. So donkey saw the angel, verse 27, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with a staff. The eternal, verse 28, the eternal opened the mouth of the donkey, and she, the donkey, spoke, and actually you read back in Jude, it was with a man's voice, 
and said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, can you imagine, you know, your dog or your cat saying, why do you strike me these two or three times? It seems like Balaam didn't think anything of it. Well, this is a natural thing for a donkey to speak to me, you know. But... uh, Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hands, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, verse 30, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. <laughs> the donkey said, aren't I a loyal, aren't I a loyal donkey to you? <laughs> it's an amazing story. And the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And so uh, the angel of the Lord uh, said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Verse 32. So Balak heard that Balaam was coming, and later on in uh, verse 37, uh, God let him go to see Balak. And uh, Balaam says to him, verse 38, the word that the God that God puts in my mouth that I must speak. Verse 41, so it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. And so they make an offering and uh, have sacrifices, but then God has Balaam bless Israel and actually turn a curse on Moab. This goes up three times. The next time they go to the top of Pisgah, chapter 23, verse 14. Later on then, and these inspiring um, messages that God gives through Balaam. I'll just read verse 19 of chapter 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. So now they go up a different place, to the top, verse 28, to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. And then chapter 24, Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. He did not go, as at other times, to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And so uh, later on, Uh, Balak is uh, chapter 24, verse 10. Balak is angry at Balaam. He said, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Verse 13. If Balak were to give me his house of silver of gold, I could could not go beyond the word of the Lord. Now, after all of these attempts to get Balaam to curse Israel, what happens? Verse 25. Chapter 24, Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. So it seems like, well, that's the end of the story. Well, no, it's not the end of the story. But there's something missing in between. And Josephus, this is uh, Josephus' Antiquities. Josephus fills in a little of the story. This is uh, Antiquities of the Jews, uh, book... You get it here, book 4, chapter 6, and section 6. So what happened was that Balaam really wanted that silver and gold. God wouldn't allow him to curse him, but Balaam found a way to give advice 
to Balak so that Israel could be cursed. What was that advice? Josephus says here in uh, Book 4, Chapter 6, Section 6, so that if you have a mind to gain victory, Balaam tells Balak, if you have a mind to gain victory over them for a short space of time, you will obtain it by following my directions. Do you therefore set out? Do you therefore set out the handsomest of such of your daughters as are most eminent for beauty, and proper to force and conquer the modesty of those that behold them? And these decked and trimmed to the highest degree you are able. Then do you send them to be near the Israelites' camp and give them a charge that when the young men of the Hebrews desire their company, they allow it. And when they see that they are enamored of them, let them take their leaves. And if they entreat them to stay, that is the Moabite women, let them not give their consent till they have persuaded them to leave off their obedience to their own laws and leave off the worship of that God who established them and to worship the God, gods of the Midianites and the Moabites. For by this means, God will be angry at them. Accordingly, when Balaam had suggested this counsel to them, he went away. And so these men were seduced. They were deceived. Section 8 gives an illustration of the women talking to the men. Oh, you illustrious young men, you have houses of your own at home and great plenty of good things there, together with natural affection of your parents and friends. Nor is it out of our want of any such things that we came to to discourse with you. Nor did we admit of your invitation with design to prostitute the beauty of our bodies for gain. But taking you for brave and worthy men, we agreed to your request that we might treat you with such honors as hospitality requires. Well, I won't go into their whole uh, persuasive uh, tact because, uh, of course, Proverbs is at chapter 9, uh, warns young men about prostitutes and how they can easily uh, seduce you. But they go on to say, the women say to the men, it will be absolutely necessary if you would have us for your wives that you do with all worship our gods. Nor can there be any other demonstration of the kindness which you say you already have and promise to have hereafter us than this, that you worship the same gods that we do. So what happens then? Balak got his money. And we read in Numbers 25 what happens next. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Eternal was aroused against Israel. Let's turn back to Second Peter the second chapter. So even some of the leaders of Israel were seduced. They were deceived. They were distracted. They detoured from the pathway that God had set for them. Second Peter, the second chapter, actually makes a comment about Balaam. Second Peter 2, starting with uh, verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, the context of this is, again, uh, false teachers and 
ministers. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote an article called In the Good News of Tomorrow's World. We actually had the Tomorrow's World magazine in Worldwide. <clears throat> this is from the personal from the editor, Herbert W. Armstrong, November 1969. And it illustrates the kind of temptation that Balaam's way of life suggests. Mr. Armstrong writes, Did you ever stop to ask, how far may I safely go in doing what I want, but know I ought not? I've done that. I've known that I want to go in a a wrong way, and I think, well, just going a little bit in the wrong way, that's okay. Maybe, Maybe a little more. Mr. Armstrong talks about the way of Balaam. Later, Balaam said that God had blessed Israel, and I cannot reverse it. Numbers 23, verse 20. Of Israel, Balaam said, The Lord his God is with him. There is no enchantment against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. Numbers 23, verses 21 and 23. Notice God is the God of Israel, his God, not Balaam's God. Balaam practiced divination and enchantment, and God did not allow it against Israel. But notice Balaam's attitude and an attitude we need to monitor ourselves on because God's people can be tempted, and this is what Mr. Armstrong writes. Balaam wanted to go just as far in the wrong way as he dared. That is Satan's way. Now, just how far may you safely go in doing what you want instead of what you ought to do. Let's turn to another reference on Balaam here in Revelation, the second chapter, Revelation 2. Revelation 2 and starting in uh, verse 13. Speaking to uh, the church at Pergamos, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. It's interesting that uh, many of the German archaeologists have actually been to Pergamos and have taken the very throne that was there in Pergamos in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. And when my wife and I were there in 2006, we visited it, and here's this all almost reconstructed temple 
area of what he's talking about here, the altar that was at uh, Pergamos, now in Berlin. Just an interesting data point. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So again, God condemns this doctrine of Balaam, this way of Balaam. You try to go as far as you can in the wrong way without getting caught, without having to pay a penalty. So Mr. Armstrong continues in his article, Just how far may you safely go in doing what you want instead of what you ought to do? Haven't you often compromised on this? Haven't you often wanted to do something you knew you really ought not? And haven't you sometimes gone at least part way, thinking that perhaps if you didn't go all the way in doing wrong, you might, quote, get away with it, end of quote. How many under temptation to commit fornication or adultery go part way, perhaps just a little necking? And how often does that lead to going just a little farther, and then perhaps just a little farther still? Going that first part way is already committing the act spiritually, according to the spirit or intent of the law. When you did that, you were already guilty in God's sight. So we see the lesson of Balaam, that Balaam never wanted to hit the bullseye, representing the center of God's way of life. Balaam wanted to hit the target as far out as possible, and still get away with his carnal way of life. The way of Balaam is the way of going as far as you can in the wrong direction and still be considered righteous in doing God's will. That very attitude is visible in some of God's people. So we, brethren, need to recognize the danger in that attitude, turn around and hit the bullseye of life and seek the perfect goal of God with zeal and with discipline. Now, another application of the way of Balaam is living on the edge. You've heard that expression. One definition of that idiom is as follows, to have a type of life in which you are often involved in exciting or dangerous activities. And I might add to qualification to that without regard to the laws of nature and safety or with little regard to the laws of nature and safety. I was reading in the Charlotte Observer here recently where two college girls were sitting on a railroad bridge, railroad trestle, right next to the railroad tracks. Uh, They were texting. They took photos of the uh, street below, and uh, that was the last that they texted in their life because a coal train came by, and whether their presence on the tracks or near the tracks caused the derailment, a derailment took place, the coal buried those two girls, and they died. They were living on the edge. They shouldn't have been there next to those railroad tracks on that railroad bridge. Let's turn to Luke, the 13th chapter, Luke 13. Yes, 
Time and chance happens to all people, but if you're praying for God's protection, he can turn that time and chance around. Luke 13. And here Jesus talks about accidents that took place and terrible things, that tragedies that happened. Luke 13, starting verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? We have to be careful in the church that when there's an accident, and that's happened in the past, people judge and said, Oh, that's something wrong with that person because that person had a terrible accident. God is punishing that person. We have to be very careful about making those kinds of judgments. Do you suppose that they were sinners more than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So we have to be careful and ask God for protection. We need to be in a repentant attitude. I was watching a program, actually came across it, channel surfing. Yes, I channel surf once in a while. It was called The World's Dumbest Daredevils. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's obvious that these are dumb daredevils. They are putting their life in danger. They are tempting the laws of nature and safety. Um, I'll just give you a couple examples. A motorcycle is on a busy highway, and he's doing wheelies. He's getting up on one wheel. He's doing stunts in a very busy highway. And, along, and this is on video. And along comes another motorcycle behind him, crashes into him, and he sprawled out on the, you know, on the pavement. The world's dumbest daredevils. Then there was another one where a, uh, you know, we try to be creative, inventive in the, in the most uh, dangerous ways, I think. In this case, a young man was tying a surfboard to the back of an automobile and was going to go surfing on the pavement as the car was going to pull him on the pavement. It just so happened the car started up, the trunk lid was up, and he lurched forward somehow, and the trunk lid came down, crashed right on his skull, and uh, it was very, very, very bloody. And, uh, no, who would ever want to go surfing on uh, the highway behind a car? I don't know. But anyway, it, of course, reminded me of the lesson many of you have heard me give over the years, And it certainly wasn't as uh, painful or as damaging as that particular daredevil. But uh, I had, when I was pastoring in Texas, a Taurus Ford. And the trunk lid and the back of it had a weak spring. So when I would put my briefcase into the back of the car and the trunk, the trunk lid would only go up so far. I forgot about that, but as I put the briefcase into the trunk, I'd always hit my head on the trunk lid. So that started uh, the series of my historic lessons, and I usually write them down here in my little week at a glance, 
And I put there, don't bump your head on the Taurus trunk lid. Now, some of us, it takes learning lessons over and over again, but we shouldn't have to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. So that's why I write down some of these lessons. Some people are living on the edge. And uh, when you think about some of these, uh, even America's Funniest Videos, where I watch them, and here someone is hitting a, the father and the, the kid, and, and he hits a baseball and hits the father in the head, or hits the father in the belly, and he, he doubles over in pain. And all the audience is laughing. Isn't that funny? Boy, that guy really got hit by his, his son's baseball in the head. It's just and then there are all these other kinds of, uh, whether it's, um, you know, roller skating or uh, some other kind of uh, activity. They, they have an accident, and the whole audience laughs. An ATV uh, tries catapulting and crashes upside down. Everyone laughs. I remember we were up in uh, Saratoga, Wyoming. I think uh, Dr. Uh, Scott Winnell and his family were up there this uh, past summer. Up there one summer, and Mr. Ben Whitfield took us up into the mountains. This beautiful lake, and uh, above the, the lake is a, a, a cliff. He said in the winter time, uh, people go uh, motor, what's a ski, uh, ski mobiling, and uh, he said every every once in a while, you see that cliff up there? Uh, ski mobiles will come, and they don't realize there's a cliff, and they just go full speed off that cliff, you know, a thousand feet to their death. You know, there's a, something called wisdom. And there's something called common sense. And one definition of wisdom is common sense to an uncommon degree. So when you look at these America's Funniest Videos or the world's dumbest daredevils, you realize people are living on the edge, and they shouldn't be, and neither should any of us be living on the edge. One of Dr. Meredith's... Uh, laws of radiant health was avoid bodily injury. And I hope that we pray for protection. I might turn to Hebrews, the first chapter, Hebrews 4 and uh, Hebrews 1. And I appreciate the uh, sermonette. But in this particular case, they are angels who are ministering spirits to those who are heirs of salvation, Hebrews 1 and verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So while they're dangerous stunts, people living on the edge... I hope that you pray. I pray for protection every day. I hope you do. And we thank God for His angels who are ministering spirits. And I can recount many different times when I'm sure God protected me from an accident uh, that was uh, about to happen. And it had me a little shaken, but I had to realize uh, I had prayed for protection that day. And God, uh, presumably at that point, either said an angel to protect me or stop that other car from hitting my car. <clears throat> we realize some some accidents are unavoidable. It's happened to two of our members here in our local congregation who got um, hit uh, from behind when they were at a stoplight or something. 
So there's hardly anything you can do in those cases. But you need to, of course, have your seatbelt on. When you think about driver safety videos, we have to learn to drive defensively. As one of the principles, aim high is another principle in driving safely so that you're looking far ahead and making sure that you uh, are concentrating on what you're doing, not texting, um, not being distracted. In the United States, in 2010, there were 32,885 auto deaths, one death per 10,000 people. It was the lowest traffic fatalities in the United States in 62 years. However, when you take the Charlotte Observer newspaper and you look at the end of the school year, and here's this tragic accident of a teenager who was out that night uh, partying and then uh, crashed into a tree or something, and it's just tragic. But we have to be alert. We don't want to be distracted. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to have to take detours. Now, there is a difference between living on the edge and accomplishing challenging goals. There is mountain climbing. There are certain safety rules in mountain climbing. There are those who uh, actually um, take part in the triathlon, where they're, they're swimming for, is it 2.3 miles, and then a bicycle for 120 miles, and then run a marathon 26 miles after that. And those can be challenging, and I think that some of our members have actually done that. There are clean sports that we can be involved in. Back in Ambassador College, <clears throat> when I was there in the uh, 60s, and then again uh, later on in the 80s, uh, Mr. Jim Petty was the physical education director for Ambassador College in Pasadena. And he wrote an article in the Plain Truth magazine, January 1983, What is the Major Purpose of Sports?, by James M. Petty. Quote, We can safely say that sports can be very beautiful or very ugly and anything in between. Subhead, Teaching True Values of Sports. For sports to be beautiful, there must be a recognition by all concerned of the major purpose of sports. That major purpose is to teach and instill true values and proper attitudes in those who participate. It is a vital part of the educational process. If we lose sight of that fact, we open ourselves up for much trouble. The article goes on to expound on the values of courage, endurance, patience, and teamwork. Of course, Living University teaches those true values of life. God's church teaches the true values of life. And what are those core values? Well, let's take a look at them briefly. You know them, but let's take a look. Matthew, the fifth chapter, the Sermon on the Mount. These are the true values of life. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was seated, His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about each one of these values. Are you poor in spirit, meaning humble? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Are you meek? 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Yes, they're on the right path. They're not being distracted off the highway to life. For they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So those are true values, as well as the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verse 22. It's the way of give, not the way of get, as Acts 20 verse 35 tells us. We have a sermon in our library, sermon number 401, Lasting Values. I'd recommend that you listen to that. But there are other distractions and deceptions of life. The church has been challenged in the past by an apostasy and with deceptive arguments. The church at that point in time was transitioning away from God's commandments to a false new covenant. The deceptive argument, one of the deceptive arguments, there are many, but one of the deceptive arguments went like this. We still worship on the seventh-day Sabbath and the annual holy days, not because we have to, but because we want to. Now, that sounds pretty mature, doesn't it? Because we all need to have the desire to want to do something. So on the surface, it sounds like a purpose, a person who is matured to a higher level of loving motivation. In actuality, however... It is a person who has become his own arbiter of authority. I decide what is right and wrong. And moral authority, if it exists, from whatever source, is irrelevant to me. It leaves unanswered the question, are you or are you not required to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath and the annual holy days? But that is the key question, and the answer is clearly found in the New Testament and the Old Testament. First of all, God does require obedience. Christ requires obedience. I remember in the discussion in that transition period back in the former association, the word obedience was <laughs> made, the, made some of these ministers cringe. It just seemed to be a, a, a bad word. But it's there in God's word. They equated the interpretation of requirements and obedience with the words legalism or works. They gave a wrong spin on the truth of God. The word law was also an antagonism to some of the adherents. But God tells us, of course, in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, Jeremiah 31, that he will write his laws on our hearts and on our minds. Let's turn to that uh, briefly there in Hebrews, the 8th chapter, because I remember my colleague who originally was against all this apostasy and turning around, finally had an epiphany and turned around and went the wrong way. And I heard him in a sermon reading this particular section. And he was reading through uh, Hebrews, the 8th chapter, uh, verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I make a new house with a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in their day when I took them by the hand and led them, led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them. Then he skipped verse 10 and went on to verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. Why did he skip verse 10? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God shows us that, yes, there is a new covenant coming. We are under the new covenant now. God is writing his laws on our hearts and minds with our cooperation, and we become more mature in godly character as time goes on. So to say we will still worship on the seventh day Sabbath and the annual holy days, not because we have to, but because we want to, was a transitional statement, if you will. It begs the question of obedience. It implies that God's moral authority is non-existent, irrelevant, or subservient to the independent Christian set of doctrines or traditions. And I wrote in this commentary uh, some years ago, there are two issues. One, are God's laws and moral authority as expressed in the Bible from beginning to end now in effect? Two, if they are, what is my motivation in obeying them? The converted mind recognized the sovereignty of God. It recognizes that biblical law and instructions as exemplified and magnified by Jesus Christ, are authoritative. The converted mind not only recognizes biblical authority, but it also has the heart, motivation, and mind to obey and practice God's law. Indeed, King David, a man after God's own heart, expressed it this way. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law indeed. I shall observe it with my whole heart. Notice that David did not add, not because I have to. So in the end of this commentary, I wrote, in the final analysis, Mr. Herbert Armstrong was right in describing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 9 and Genesis 2, 17. Adam and Eve took, Mr. Armstrong writes from Mystery of the Ages, quote, Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Taking of its fruit was taking to themselves the knowledge of what is good and what is evil, deciding for themselves what is right and what is sin. This, of course, meant rejection of God's law, which defined for them the right and the wrong. End of quote. That's from Mystery of the Ages, page 119. Let's turn to Psalm 119. You might uh, read the January-February 2003 Tomorrow's World article, Must We Obey God to Be Saved? That is a core question, because the liberals say, no, obedience has to do with works. Must we obey God to be saved? You can uh, go on our Tomorrow's World website and uh, do type that into the search mode, and you can find the Tomorrow's World article on that, title, on that title, Must We Obey God to Be Saved? Psalm 119, starting with verse 97. David is a man after God's own heart. 
Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. You know, when I was in graduate class, there were, you know, we were, I was talking about educational philosophy, and you really, the professor really almost had your head spinning. Because he's talking about liberal principles and so forth. But how could you sort that out? You sort that out because you know the absolutes. You know the truth. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. No, you don't go along with the crowd, even though the crowd may be on your Facebook page and your friends are trying to get uh, personal validation by showing how worldly they are. See, I'm, I'm a worldly person, so therefore I know you'll accept me, my friends in the church. You see, that's the way of Balaam. That's the way of the world. And David didn't have that attitude. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And then verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. <clears throat> the world is going into darkness. And we, if you've observed some of the policies and the trends and the beliefs of what was going on at the conventions this year, and you realize that, yes, the world is headed downhill. Women's rights... We're free to kill our babies. That's our right. Gay rights. We're free to sin against our own bodies. Free? Let's turn to Romans, the 8th chapter, Romans 8. No, we see the new covenant is that God is going to write His laws on our hearts and on our minds. And we have to be careful that the ways of this world, the deceptions of this world, the distractions of this world can take us away from the right path. That path that David talked about is a light to our path. His ways, his laws light up our paths. Romans 8, start with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So God looks to those who will liberate the world, liberate the world from sin. Turn back to chapter 6. Actually, it should have been chapter 6 and verse 20, but uh, it fit right in with the sermon anyway. Romans 6 and verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed 
in regard to righteousness. And here, all these people cheering, yes. No, they didn't verbalize it. I'm free to kill my babies. They verbalized it. I'm free. This is women's rights. This is gay rights. What does it say? You were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When they're free, what are they free from? They are free from righteousness, verse 20, and they are slaves of sin. Turn back to uh, James, the first chapter, James, James 1. How beautiful are those comments by David in Psalm 119. Your law is a light unto my path. James 1, and, uh, verse 25, verse 25. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty. What is liberty? Is it the way of this world? Or is it God's way? And continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. And we previously read verse 22. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James 2 and verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Satan is the master temper. And one tempter, <clears throat> once you take your eyes off the goal, off the trunk of the tree, you'll be vulnerable to doctrinal fallacies. We have a sermon in our library, sermon number 253, Stick to the Trunk of the Tree. So we need to pray for an obedient and responsive heart. To pray that God will write His laws on our hearts and on our minds. Pray that you will not deceive yourself. I pray that I will not be deceived by myself, nor by the world, nor by Satan. You already saw how we can be deceived by ourselves. We just read back here in James 1, verse 22, in Jeremiah 17, 9. Pray that you'll not be distracted, that you'll not be deceived, that you'll not go on a detour from the path of life. I'll just read to you Psalm 16, verse 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's turn to Luke 17. Luke 17. Mr. Armstrong wrote in that Tomorrow's World article about the way of Balaam. He said, if you do not even go as far in the wrong direction as you feel safe, if you do what is commanded, what God through his word shows is your duty, but do not go even farther in the right direction, doing more than your duty, Jesus Christ says you are an unprofitable servant. Plainly, Christ expects us to do more than duty in the right direction. We need to make sure we're in the right direction but we need to be profitable servants. Luke 17 and verse 5. Luke 17, verse 5. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed or as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. And I think it's fair to say that many of our brethren here in the congregation, our office, are profitable servants. I can't say everyone is, but I wish that everyone were a profitable servant. Remember the context of this was, Lord, increase our faith. You increase your faith by being a profitable servant. And we all need to review Dr. Meredith's sermon last week on building a radiant faith. He gave five keys. One was study your Bible. Two was meditate on reading of the Bible. Number three of the keys of building a radiant faith was meditate on examples of faith in your own life and in the lives of others. Number four was pray for faith. And number five was exercise faith. So God has given us great and precious promises to help us to live by faith. Those promises he mentions in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4. So God has given us the way to love, the way to life, and the way to true liberty. Our calling is the greatest calling of all people on the face of the earth, and we must apply Matthew 6, verse 33. We must strive to hit the center of the target of life. We must trust our Savior to save us. Yet, we still go through trials. So let's turn to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. And we will continue to experience trials. But we need a positive attitude of faith when we experience those trials. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial... That is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. I told someone recently who was going through a trial, I said, look to Christ. And I know when I'm in pain or suffering, I try to focus on the throne of God in heaven and realize there the Lamb of God who had a spear jammed in his side and who was scourged and had his skin ripped off his body and his face mutilated. I realize he's alive now, glorified, and he can deliver me from whatever trial or test or bring me through that trial or test, teaching me the lessons that I need to learn. But Peter says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12. Again, the focus that most we will all need to concentrate on. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, yes, 
the faith chapter, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us, the distractions, the deceptions, and the detours, and the sin which does so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking unto the Savior, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to the captain of our salvation. Just turn back to uh, Hebrews 7, verse 25. You can have the assurance and the comfort to know that when you're in trouble, you have someone there to plead your case. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you are challenged, look to Christ. Let's turn to Proverbs, the third chapter, in closing. Be careful what I say about closing. But Proverbs, the third chapter. Time is getting short. But some of our brethren have the idea that they have the rest of our lives to repent and change. You don't have the rest of your life to repent and change. Now is the time to draw near to God, as he says in James 4 and verse 8, and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. Watch out for the dangers of deceptions and detours and distractions. Beware of the way of Balaam. And wholeheartedly apply the seventh law of success, which is seek God's continual guidance. And we find that here in Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the eternal with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Brethren, we have a mission to perform. We can rejoice in God's way of life as long as we stay away from the fringes and living on the edge and trying to emulate the worldly ways of life. But let's wholeheartedly strive to be in the center of God's way of life. Let's fulfill the great commission in preparing ourselves, the church, and the world for the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. And let's help others into the kingdom. Let's focus on the kingdom and on our Savior in heaven. We have to do our part, and God will do his. Because he tells us in Philippians 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's go forward with focus, with dedication, and with heart and fulfilling the mission that God has given us, staying clearly on the path of life.